All right. Good morning, guys. Uh, welcome to, uh, I guess, our third session on uh, an ethics course. Um, if you guys don't already have one, there's a handout in the back, which is sort of an outline of kind of where we're going, I hope. Uh, there might be some bonus material in there, but uh, let's pray and get started. Father, we give thanks that you have not left us as orphans uh, to figure things out, to maximize our intellectual horsepower and say, I've got it. But rather, you've revealed yourself to us in your word and in creation. You tell us what you're like and who we are and how we ought to be. Uh, do so even this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so the, the title for this lecture uh, is all over the place. It's Christian Epistemology Number 2. Last week we looked at some epistemology. Uh, another title would be Towards the Why and the What of Ethics, right? Why should we do what we need to do? And what? What do we need to do, right? Uh, and uh, I'm really getting where I want to go. Westminster Shorter Catechism Number 3, right? I know that for some people, uh, talking about the catechism out of the gate is, it uh, triggers you. So uh, I'm, I'm warming you up there. This is like, uh, you know, dishonest preachers who uh, will, uh, you know, bait and switch you. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, but uh, it's, we're talking motivation for ethics here today. So uh, as you guys know, last week, uh, we examined Christian epistemology. I argued that knowing how to think and act right as creatures is on the basis of God's self-revelation in the scriptures. And we confess that by answering Westminster Shorter Catechism 2. So let's look at Shorter Catechism number 2. I printed out at the top of your worksheet. Let's just uh, recite that together. I'll go ahead and ask the question you can answer. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Now, by way of a little bit of review, I argued that how we know what we know, and that's epistemology, how we know what we know, um, it's by revelation, whether it's through God's revealing himself in creation, or more specifically, through special revelation, the Bible, both of these speak truth about God. And through creation and revelation in Scripture, we can know much about God. Now, let's be clear. Neither general nor special revelation reveal God in himself, right? As God is in himself. We are not able to contain a full comprehension of who and what God is, right? He speaks to us, as Calvin says, kind of like a nursing mother chews the morsels for her children. That's a gross illustration, but it's a pre-Gerber one, right? Calvin is saying, in order for us to get nurture and nourishment, our mothers need to chew our food and put it in our mouth, right? Because we ain't got teeth, right? We don't have the ontological mojo, the, the essence of being and the power of being in order to comprehend God fully. So he speaks to us in ways that we can understand in human language, in scripture. He speaks to us in visceral ways so we can see him in creation or see his handiwork in creation. But I just want to throw out the idea that uh, God's revelation is flawless. Whether it's in creation, whether it's in scripture, it is without error. 
However, that doesn't stop the fact in our realization, of course, that our interpretation of God's creation and our interpretation of his word often has flaws. We're able to misinterpret both the Bible and creation wrongly. And theologians have called this the noetic effects of sin, right? Uh, For your viewing pleasure, I put in there noetic is an adjective of relating to or based on the intellect. So we're making the argument that sin affects everything. As Calvinists, of course, we believe in total depravity. We think that Scripture teaches clearly that everything about us is fallen. We're not saying that we're as evil as we can be all the time. That's a misunderstanding of the Reformed position. The biblical data is that everything about us is fallen, and that includes our thoughts, right? Our thought life, our minds. The noetic effects of sin teaches us that sin affects our mind. So our presuppositions, what we think about things before we even get to them, they taint how we approach both the Bible and creation. We must be on our guard always to think God's thoughts after him. The church's confession is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that involves understanding God and obeying him as he's revealed himself. So we ended with noting that there's two basic positions for our epistemology, how we know what we know. Our basic options are theonomy or autonomy. We can know what we know on the basis of God's self-revelation or our own self-made reality. One submits to the lordship of King Jesus, who says all authority on heaven and earth belong to me. The other one, of course, is classically uh, displayed in Shirley MacLaine's character in uh, the movie Out on a Limb. I, I watched the last few moments of that recently, and it, 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 as, as awful as the theology is, it hit me like these guys are having deep philosophical slash theological discussions in the middle of a Hollywood movie. And that was kind of interesting. Um, but if you've seen the movie, uh, you know, there, there's a, a, a period where she's sort of trying to bolster her self-esteem with a friend who's like her life coach at that moment. And one of the things that they come to to bolster her self-esteem is she's standing on the beach and she says, I am God. And then, of course, she needs to say it. I am God, right? Like she's flexing her supposed God mojo to make herself feel good. That is a thing in the culture, right? We, we want to bolster our self-esteem by even saying, I am God, whether we're part of the God uh, nature and uh, sort of a pantheistic reality or what, I'm not sure. But those are the two options, theonomy and autonomy. Now, it does need to be said, and I didn't say it last week, because theonomy, the concept of theonomy, when we talk the options between theonomy and autonomy, this is classic Cornelius Van Til, okay? Uh, Van Til is just making the argument that There's two options. We know reality is God's revealed himself. He is the one who makes the law. He's the lawgiver. We're his creation. Uh, Now, that term has, of course, been taken up by guys like Greg Bonson and Rush Dooney, etc. And they, so I guess what I need to say, just as a disclaimer, all theonomists are presuppositionalists, at least if they're consistent, Um, but not all presuppositionalists are theonomists. And it's worthwhile to say, Cornelius Van Til, in my opinion, certainly wasn't, although he had an appreciation for theonomic guys because they adopted his uh, approach to uh, epistemology. So get that out of the way. We'll talk about uh, how Christ exercises his lordship in culture in a bit if we have time. But let's sort of get that out of the way. 
Now, of course, when defining this theocentric bordered reality where God exists outside of the creation, he defines us as made in his image, and we're to image him both statively, that is, we image God in terms of who we are, our nature images God as a noun, but also actively, that we have to actively be like God, what we do, we get uncomfortable, right? If we have to image God in terms of who we are and what we do, that gets us uncomfortable. All of us get uncomfortable, even those of us who wholeheartedly embrace that idea and that belief. Fallen nature, whether it's angelic, i.e. Satan and the fallen angels, or human, that is all of us, fallen nature bristles at God's sovereignty and existence ever since the fall. We deem this to be an oppressive ideology. How can it be otherwise when we're at enmity with him, right? One view, of course, has God at the center of reality, and the other view, of course, has self, right? So you can have a theocentric view, God's at the center of reality, or a self-centered view. Here are some of the fallen humanity's best hits. I was trying to make a playlist recently, and I thought, what are the best hits of uh, fallen humanity? Well, here's some of them from the playlist I was creating. Uh, this is from the garden till today. Isn't this view of God and him revealing himself to us as static and understood as outside of us and him having lordship over everything and us being subject to him, isn't this a limiting view of reality? Doesn't this box me in? And of course you can feel that language in Genesis 3, right? Satan says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Eve, God is limiting you. He's holding you back from your true potential, right? That is a common satanic theme from the garden. How about this one? Well, doesn't this idea of God and his revelation squelch, reduce our freedom? Isn't the idea of God controlling all things stifling? Isn't this an oppressive ideology? Doesn't it deny our lived experience? Well, the psalmist, of course, summarizes this viewpoint in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. This is a common theme in humanity. Now, at some point, we've all had these thoughts. Some of you might be thinking, no, I've been born from above. I trust in the Lord Jesus. God is my creator. I am subject to him, etc. I rejoice uh, in, in being a creature as God has defined me. Good. But the flesh exists, and we all kick against the goads at some point, right? This is a common experience. When we seek to be autonomous, we pursue something that, uh, I'm sorry, this desire to be a law unto ourselves through self-help or through the manipulation of nature is strong. We all want to say in the words of our second or two or three-year-old self, I'm the boss of me, you're not the boss of me. A common experience when we seek to be autonomous is to pursue something that blunts the pain of life that we all experience in an imperfect and often boring world. So the pursuit of fun, joy, or happiness, as we conceive of it, 
is often aided by experiments with sex, sexuality, and mind-altering experiences through the abuse of drugs or alcohol. Some of our autonomy, on the other hand, might be more straight-laced. Maybe you're an engineer and you have power and you want to create and exercise your autonomy in creating something better than anything that's come before. But these are some common themes within the human uh, predicament. <coughs> now, such action, so, you know, for those guys that build things, maybe we're talking about people building aqueducts, cities, governmental systems and structures, etc. Now, such actions demonstrate our independence, our autonomy, and our feeling of being stifled by God, or perhaps even they demonstrate uh, our own conscience, right? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, such actions demonstrate our independence, our autonomy, our feeling of being stifled by God, societal pressures, or perhaps even our own conscience. Our consciences can stifle us on occasion. But then think about that. Uh, people in their lusts for things, they often don't have the ability to pursue all that they'd like to pursue. They might not have the resources. They might not have the time. They might not have the connections, right? We often lack the means to pursue our fill of these things. And then we note the inequity in systems and we shake our fist at those systems as well. It can quickly devolve into a world where everyone is out to get you. And uh, you don't need to be strung out on meth to have that conclusion. And by the way, if you've ever been strung out on meth, that's a thing. They're out to get me, right? I mean, it, it's, it's talk about oppression. That, that's a serious one. And uh, so many things that we do thinking that it's going to deliver us from feeling boxed in, you find out that it boxes you in as well. Now, some of this exponential growth, uh, some of the exponential growth that we've seen in recent years of psychological services and the emphasis on mental health seeks to alleviate some of this frustration with finding meaning on our own in a world where things don't always work and they aren't how we always expect. By all metrics in that field, by the way, the problem appears to be getting worse with the proliferation of uh, psychological services in terms of counseling and those kinds of things, uh, it seems to be getting worse. Anxiety, depression, and suicide are all on the rise. I'm not saying that to poo-poo anything. I'm just saying to, the fact is, it's a rough world, and people find different ways of trying to deal with it. Now, I want you to imagine a person who has the monetary, uh, the connections, just someone who has the resources to pursue these themes, right? Sex, uh, mind-altering things, building schemes, and uh, I just want you to think about Solomon, okay? Because Solomon certainly is the guy. Scripture lays out for us King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes as an empirically tested example of where that autonomous lust for ultimate independent authority can get you, right? So we're looking at Solomon as an example of human autonomy with all the resources to do what he wants, okay? So for the first one, whereas the drunkard complains about a lack of funds for another round of drinks and is always pursuing someone to buy their next drink, Solomon doesn't have that problem. He's got the money to fund that, right? And what does he say in Ecclesiastes 2.9? Uh, I guess I better get there after Psalms. 
Ecclesiastes 2.9 says, uh, 2.3, I'm sorry. Um, wow, that text is small. I searched my heart with how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Yeah, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he pursues using alcohol to see if it can help him alleviate or blunt the pain of a life under the curse. Uh, another thing we could think about is being sexually promiscuous, right? Whereas the sexually promiscuous might wail that they have not had their fill with sufficient partners or patterns, Solomon doesn't have that problem. Solomon says in 2.8, uh, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of men, right? So he's pursuing those behaviors, trying to see if there's some satisfaction, some meaning, something to squelch the pain through that. And lastly, we look at his uh, desire to build. Whereas the builder might complain of lack of funding or frustration with labor, Solomon is the king. He doesn't complain about that. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 9, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions and herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver. Yeah, um, you know, Solomon uh, doesn't, he's not like a normal guy like you and me, right? He's able to pursue the things that he wanted to pursue to their logical ends, right? Scarcity was not an issue for him in terms of those things. Now Solomon, of course, has a conclusion to all of his well-resourced escapades in wisdom, madness, and folly. And you guys know this. It's the recurring refrain of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, depending on your translation. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless or vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Those are his opening words right out of the gate with the book. After having done his empirical research to see what would satisfy him, he realizes that kind of sucked, right? There was no ultimate satisfaction in pursuing these things. Um, and in my view, I think Ecclesiastes is an argument for resurrection, life, but that's, that's another study. Solomon, of course, has this conclusion. It's, it's vanity. It's vanity. All is vanity. So if Solomon felt stifled at the beginning of his experiment by a God who orders all of reality according to his will, he still felt stifled at the end of his experiment while he tried to employ naked autonomy with the resources to pursue his passions. The control that he thought he would gain by pursuing these things ended up being an illusion. The control that he pursued with naked human autonomy was stifling. Our control, oftentimes when we pursue it, is an illusion. So Solomon closes Ecclesiastes with these words in 1213. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. Now, I would encourage you, and this is hard because we're humans and we like to learn by pain and suffering in our own 
we can't listen to people. Think about your parents. When you're 16 or 18, they tell you things and you think they don't know anything. And often for most of us, now granted, there are some bad parents and some of them don't know anything. And, you know, uh, it, it's good to have a good God that you listen to. And you're called to obey your parents unless they call you to sin and then you're like, nope, not going to do that. But oftentimes we see that our parents were right, right? I would encourage you guys to think about Solomon as you are tempted to find your satisfaction in pursuing this world and the things of it. Think about Solomon. How did it work for him? Hey, Solomon had a fatter bankrolling ability than I do to pursue what he wanted. And his conclusion was, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, maybe our deep-seated dissatisfaction with life for our rampant anxiety is rooted in the fact that we want to be something that we're not. A fish could complain about its limits of its lake, right? Oh, this lake is confining. It's awful. I've been through every part of it. But once it jumps out of that lake and onto the shore and flaps about and gasps with its gills, uh, it soon realizes, wow, I was made to be a fish and not a bird, and not a lizard, and maybe I can find satisfaction in getting the water through my gills and doing whatever they do to get oxygen out of water. That's pretty neat. I don't know, because I'm not a fish. I'm really happy being a human. Well, likewise, beloved, we find our freedom when we recognize and respect God's created reality. And we'll maybe look at a, some examples, right? Oftentimes, the argument is, well, I can't do or be, or I'm stifled by this view of reality. Well, think about Michelangelo. Uh, at least as we look at him in history, we don't think he was stifled, right? We think he was an amazing artist, right, who did what he did for the glory of God. Maybe Rembrandt. He's even Protestant. Yes, right? Uh, he did what he did for the glory of God, right? Uh, Maybe in music, we could think of Bach and Handel, right? These guys are writing what they write. I think it was Bach. I'm not a musician, right? At the end of every piece, he'd write Solo Deo Gloria, I believe. Um, you could even throw Bono in there, right? Bono, you know, who knows? If, if we want to get nice, I mean, maybe Bob Dylan, you know, who knows? And the last day, of course, is going to be a fascinating day because we're going to see people that we didn't expect. And we're not going to see people that we might expect. So there's this, you know, of course, are these people, are they stifled by their view? Even if we limit ourselves to Bob Dylan during his so-called Christian phase, it's very creative, beautiful stuff, right? Uh, maybe if we think in terms of science, right? Newton, Gregor Mendel, George Washington Carver, right? Uh, every time I say George Washington Carver, I want to break out in a rap song. I'll, I'll spare you. But he made the peanut right. Um, now, come a couple of you get that. All right. Other endeavors, right? Creative endeavors. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, of course, in uh, literature. Mahalia Jackson in terms of gospel singing. I would defy anybody to tell me that these people felt stifled, right? No. Uh, these people that we praise for their accomplishments, they, their actions and their artistry reflects the enchanted nature that God has made. Now, as we talk about a high view of Scripture, and as we talk about understanding who we are in relation to our Creator and all that, 
um, we need to be careful when we're defining a high view of scripture and a theocentric view of reality. People of all sorts like to hijack the conception of God for their own aims, whether it be for a man-made religion or politics or power or self-worship. All of these are distinct possibilities. Now, I want to throw out the idea that as Christians, we are not immune to these, right? I think last week we talked about the, the desire to have a stamp that says, you know, stamped by Je- approved by Jesus. And we all want to get one of those and have it in our pocket. And we want to find our pet sins and approved by Jesus, right? Watch out for that. We are not immune. We need to be sure that what we are saying is what God says and not what we think. The vitriol in the culture that we often hear is because often people think that we concoct our morality out of our personal prejudices or preferences. You're just a bigot and a jerk, and that's why you think that, period, full stop. We always need to be clear that what we believe and what we do is rooted in Scripture and not us. If all we share with people concerning the divine or morality is our own lived experience, which we're rightly critical of when people describe morality or what's right, from their lived experience. Guys, if really all we're sharing with people is our lived experience, really we shouldn't be listened to. On the other hand, if we're faithfully sharing what God reveals in Scripture and hiding behind Him, well then absolutely we ought to be heard. But it's not because of us. It's not because of us. The Christian seeks this. On the basis of God's word, in the presence of many generations, in many cultures, and many languages, as the church, we have sought to speak the truth of God concerning, concerning God uh, through Scripture. And so just throwing in the idea there that, you know, it's not just you and your moral convictions. It's you standing on the authority of God's word with a great cloud of witnesses who's testified of the same and saying, this is what Scripture reveals, right? Uh, really, I... If we're calling people to repent and believe on the basis of just our sort of idiosyncratic readings of the text that we made up in our prayer closet, you really shouldn't be taken seriously, okay? If, on the other hand, we're faithfully saying, thus says the Lord, based on the clear teaching of Scripture, well, then, of course, we ought to be. Now, Scripture says that we'll be hated for that, so don't be surprised. Um, That's a nice little segment to our next thing. So this leads us to shorter catechism number three. Um, And uh, let's read that responsively. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So today we're going to be looking at what the scriptures principally teach. And we've sort of, we're getting our way to the motivation for ethics. Why should we do what it is we need to do? And hopefully we'll get into what it is we're supposed to do because this is an ethics class. Now, when the catechism says principally teach, it means to comment on the main message of the Bible. Now, the Bible contains a lot of information, of course, but it's not information for information's sake. It's not information so that you can, uh, you know, uh, club your dinner partners during a game of, I don't know, Bible Jeopardy or something. Uh, It's not there so you can master the birds, dogs, and babies of the Bible. Um, There's information in there to draw you to Christ so that through him you might become sons of the living God 
and learn to do what pleases your heavenly Father by the enabling of the Spirit. So John's Gospel. We'll look at John's Gospel for a bit. The Gospel of John gives us a good window into the principal teaching of the Bible. John 20, uh, 30 through 31, it says this, uh, and you know, this is John at the end of his Gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, John the Apostle, he's arguing that there's a theological purpose here, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him you might have life in his name. Uh, John 21, 25 as well. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now notice there's, there's a theological, there's an editorial objective here, right? It, it's for a purpose. Scripture is guiding us to have faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, John 14, 15 also mentions, so we've got this idea, right, that the goal of the gospel of John, at least, is that we should believe in the Son, who he sent, right? In believing in the Son, we fulfill the works of the Father, right? Uh, or do the works of the Father. Um, well, John 14, 15 says this. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? So we've got these two things going on, right? You need to believe in the Son, but also you need to obey the Son, right? And so we'll be unpacking that belief and obedience thing. Now, the Gospel of John, of course, mentions many people, places, events, and movements. They're not the main point of the book, though. They all form the stage for the central actor, Jesus. The point of the Gospel of John is Jesus, the only one who truly glorified God and enjoyed him forever. Now, this is true of the whole Bible. This pattern of uh, faith and works, or what we're going to call the indicative and the imperative. The Bible contains a whole lot of historical, geographical, political, and cultural information, especially concerning the Jews. Yet it ought not be treated as a mere book on history, geography, politics, or culture. It uses all of these subjects to focus on God's work in history to redeem sinful mankind. It principally teaches what we're to believe and do. These are the categories. And we're going to unpack these in terms of the indicative and the imperative. Okay. Um, now, question three of the catechism actually marks out the structure for the remainder of the catechism. This question is like the guidepost for the rest of the catechism. Questions 1 through 38 deal with what man is to believe concerning God. And then 39 to, what is it, 120 or 107? 107, uh, 39 to 107 deals with the duty God requires of man, right? What are we supposed to do? What does he tell us we ought to do? So the catechism's marking out for us that which we're to believe and that which we're to do. Now, notice the order in which the catechism sets this, right? The catechism says, uh, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That is not by accident, okay? 
There is a correlation between what we believe and what we do. And I'm going to make the argument today that, well, the motivation for ethics is what we believe, right? Whoopsie, believe. And the ethics part is what we do, right? That's kind of, I guess I don't need a period after do. It's a short word. You don't need to abbreviate it. Um, this is not random, nor is it a mistake. It follows the biblical pattern of the indicative and the imperative, okay? And what do I mean by that, right? When we talk about the indicative, it's speaking truth about something that is, right? The indicative passages of Scripture tell us what is, right? You are God's children, right? Statively, it's, it's true. By baptism, as we see today, you enter into the family with all the privileges and rights of the sons of God, right? The imperative says, well, as a member of the family, this is how you conduct yourself, right? Come out of the world. Be different. Now, this glorious proclamation of what Christ has done for you is in the indicative mood, right? Then as God's redeemed, adopted children, he tells us how we ought to behave in his household. This is told to us in the imperative mood because it's what we must do as we participate in his heavenly kingdom. So we'll look at a couple examples uh, first is the Exodus story, right? God takes the children of Israel out of Egypt by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm by his grace. God had, the, there was nobody that, no, nobody had any like collateral from God forcing him to save them. No, God chose them for who knows why, right? After redeeming them and calling them his people, God declares on Mount Sinai, I am the Lord your God who brought you out, brought you out of the land of Egypt right? Exodus 21 is straight up. It's the indicative mood. I am your redeeming God who crushed all the gods of Egypt and made it so that you can rest and worship me and find joy in me. That is in the indicative mood, right? And then, of course, the imperative is following in Exodus 20, verses 2 and following, is the law of God, right? You shall have no other gods before me, right? I redeemed you from them. I stomped them out. Uh, now, this is how you ought to live. Notice that God does not tell the children of Israel to behave well, and then they can be his children. Uh, another example would be the epistle of Romans, right? This, again, follows the indicative and the imperative. Chapters 1 through 11-ish deal with the indicative, right? It's the gospel preached. 1 through 3 is convincing the whole world that they're under sin. Chapter 4 says you're, you know, uh, justified by his grace, right? 5, 6, and 7, we, we deal with the two Adams, all kinds of stuff, and then we get into sanctification. Fast forward to chapter 12, and Paul says in Romans in 12:1, therefore, and that therefore, of course, is referring to Romans chapter 1 through 11, that unpacking or un exposition of the gospel of grace, Paul says, therefore, because of what God has done for you in Christ your Lord, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, which I've just told you very clearly in 1 through 11, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Paul is saying, because of God's grace, because of the mercy which he uh, has transformed and empowered you, serve him in gratitude. We're to do good works because we've been made new creatures in Christ, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says that, you know, we're saved by grace through faith for a purpose, to do good works which God has called us for. 
Now, biblical Christianity, of course, prevents, presents faith and life as joined. But you cannot separate faith and works. So at this point, we're going to talk about what I've called the eschatological choo-choo train. Uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, so sometimes it helps to have illustrations. Now, illustrations are never perfect. I'm sure you'll find something where there's... Uh, I'm probably going to teach heresy through it, possibly, if you think about it in a way that I'm not presenting it to you. So let me define my terms as we look at the eschatological choo-choo train, okay? Remember when we looked at Shorter Catechism number one, we said that the goal of humanity is to enjoy God forever, right? That forever nature of humanity, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, ultimately, that only happens in heaven, right? As we're glorified, as, as you know, we enjoy the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth, that is the place where ultimately we're going to glorify God and enjoy him forever perfectly. We certainly glorify him now and enjoy him now. But that's the goal of creation, right? That we would be with God in heaven, that he would be our God, that we would be his people, that we would love being with him and he would love being with us. And that's something we participate in a small way today as we worship. But I got this choo-choo train and notice that it's on a hill, right? There's a nice mountain and the mountain climbs, you know, who, I don't, maybe we could sing, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Well, the eschatological choo-choo train shall is the short answer. But you know how trains work. This is a steam locomotive, right? So you got a bunch of, you know, coal back here. You pour it in there. It makes a fire and, you know, it boils and pushes a piston and it's wonderful. Great mechanical stuff. Another interesting thing in which we can seek to boast and glorify ourselves is making stuff, right? Watch out, Elon Musk. You make some cool stuff, but you might start thinking you're God, right? That's, that's a temptation for all people that make amazing things, right? So that's the locomotive. Now, these, of course, are carts, and who knows what are in these. We're going to put good works in these carts, okay? Now, it could be fruit and vegetables and who knows what. doesn't matter. It's cargo, right? But if we ask the question, climbing this hill, if these uh, carts didn't have a locomotive, how would all of this fare, all of these carts? They'd go to the bottom of the hill. It would be bad news, right? They're certainly not going to go up. That much we know, okay? Now, what I would submit to you for this illustration is we're going to say this is the indicative. This is the imperative, right? This is faith. This is works, okay? Uh, in terms of what is the motivating factor, the motivation for our ethics, it is always going to be faith, okay? That the train, the motivating factor whereby, you know, the whole train, kit and caboodle, whole, whole nine yards gets up into heavenly glory, of course, is the fact that the indicative exists. God has acted in time and space history to enter into a covenant with a people to redeem them and call his own through the blood of the lamb. That is always the only vehicular motion that will ever be accomplished for your Christian life, for you obeying the Lord your God, for you not breaking the Sabbath, for you you know, not, uh, you know, lusting after other people. If, if you're going to keep God's law at all, or even have the ability to be concerned about those things, that is always finding its root and its motivation from the engine of the gospel, okay? Um, now, when we talk about this, of course, maybe, maybe this isn't the best illustration when I said faith here, because honestly, Probably faith in this illustration is 
this linking ability between the cargo and the uh, the train, right? Um, anyhow, uh, realize that in terms of our works, they are preordained, they are going to happen, but they're going to happen because we're new creatures. They're going to happen because of what God has accomplished for us in Christ and told us is true of us and tells us we must do. Now, as we look at the catechism, when we get to numbers uh, 39 through 107, it'll unpack all of those things that Protestant catechisms unpack. The Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the sacraments, right? Um, this is, uh, you know, the ethics of the faith in, in terms of how are we as redeemed people to act. Now, in my view, um, certainly there are difficult, thorny, ethical questions as we unpack the Christian faith in terms of what's right and what's wrong. There are some things that are even, you know, adiaphora, things that we dis disagree about, perhaps. But if we can agree that God's revelation is ultimate— that we're theonomic in the sense that it is God's law that trumps all human laws uh, and that we're subservient to him and we find our identity and our hope in being uh, recreated in the image of his son and satisfied with him pulling us into heaven as opposed to going through all kinds of self-justifying strategies or uh, pain-dulling techniques to try to get through life. Um, I think that is the where the emphasis should be, and I'm kind of hedging on that because I don't plan on unpacking a whole Christian ethics here today. Now, uh, some questions here really quick. Uh, of course, we're, we, are to we do produce good fruit. We do produce good works because of who we are in Christ. Um, but let's consider some questions. I've made for you a robust argument for the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is sufficient to teach us what we need to believe and what we do, okay? There's a very real sense in which there's an insufficiency of Scripture as well, okay? Last week, we talked about the Ezekiel 4-9 bread. Is the Bible sufficient to teach us how to cook? No. Picking up a Martha Stewart book might be helpful, okay? Guys? The Bible is insufficient to teach you how to repair a second-generation Toyota Prius. Ask me how I know. It just isn't. Now, it does give us a lot of freedom to know when I'm fixing my Prius and I'm practicing perhaps the words that my father taught me when repairing cars, it's not appropriate to use the hammer to hit the wise-cracking neighbor. That is clear. Thou shalt not murder. I need to preserve life, and even my own life. So I should remove that orange plug before working on the high-voltage battery, right? There are those kinds of things, absolutely. How about this one? How about the civil laws that God gave the Jews in the Old Testament? Should we say, well, hey, look, God gave laws to Old Testament Israel, and we ought to do those. Is the Bible sufficient to teach us how to rule a country? Earlier, I was kind of clarifying my position on theonomy, and, you know, the more consistent, you know, theonomist a la, uh, you know, Greg Bonson type folks, they're going to say, hey, look, we need to follow, you know, the Old Testament civic laws concerning certain things. Not, not everything. And you read them and they have, they have their own fights. Um, but um, I would submit to you, no, right? Our church's confession says those laws expired along with the people, right? And we could, maybe we need a class on... Uh, 
sort of theonomic ethics as well as uh, hermeneutics. That would be fun. Uh, but I would submit to you the Bible's not sufficient to teach us how to rule a country, right? Now, there's certainly general equity, as our uh, confession says, but how you come down on that is interesting. Uh, how about this one? How about if the pastor preaches only on the imperative without the indicative? Is that all right? If the pastor just says, do, 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 right? Well, guys, I submit to you, if all you get are the do-dos, uh, and you have no eschatological uh, motivation in your choo-choo train, it's always going to end up at the bottom of the valley, okay? Um, how about this one? Perhaps your preacher only preaches the indicative without the imperative. They always preach, hey, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He's accomplished all things for you. You should be satisfied in him. But there's never the call to repent. There's never the clear examination of yourself with the law of God, right? That's a problem. Neither of these approaches are biblical. So the question I have for you as we close is, is the Bible sufficient to teach us what we must believe and how we should live to God's glory? And beloved, the Bible is sufficient for that, okay? And that's the argument that we see in Shorter Catechism number three. I think it's about it. Let's pray. Father, how we give thanks that all that we need for life and godliness is provided for us in a person and a person that has seen fit to reveal yourself to us in the scriptures that we might not be left alone, that we might know what is good, what is true, and what is excellent, and that we might seek to practice them. Forgive us where we fail. Help us to be faithful reflectors of the coming glory of your kingdom in terms of what we believe and in terms of what we do for our neighbors. Help us to love them because without your mercy and grace, we also would be lost and in a valley. We give thanks and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.